Uh, World Magazine read an advertisement about uh, preaching a few months ago that caught my attention. I'm going to show you a picture of that ad in uh, momentarily. There it is, right there. Um, look at it. You can see it there. Here is a very confident-looking pastor with a very striped suit on. And uh, this is what the copy says. Maybe you can see it. Last week, most people saw 1,754 ads promising lasting happiness. You've got a Bible in 30 minutes. What are you going to do with it? It's an advertisement for the preaching program at Southwestern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary, a fine school in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. Now, you can respond to that ad in a number of different ways. Uh, 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 the, the seminary is hoping that you'll take it as a challenge, that, that it's going to arouse your, your spirit. You're supposed to say, I'm going to go to that school and I'm going to triumph over those 1,754 ads appealing to happiness. That's one response is what they, they want you to respond how they want you to respond. Now, other people might actually find this kind of uh, discouraging. They might say, it is impossible for me to compete uh, for your affections with the millions and billions of dollars that they pour into commercials, billboards, and magazine advertisements. Preaching is a hopeless task. Now, uh, to some degree, that sort of response is somewhat godless. Um, we believe that God's Word, empowered by God's Spirit, is more convincing than 10,000 advertisements. Uh, but even those who believe in the power of God's Word still might feel daunted by the task of speaking against this tidal wave of messages in the world. Uh, pastors and professors and teachers write and talk all the time about how to effectively communicate God's Word. You, you might not travel in that world, but trust me, every year there are books, dozens and dozens of books, written defending preaching, describing preaching, telling you how to be better at it. One of my favorite books, I, actually I didn't read the book, but the title is great. Uh, this is what it was called in recent years. 30 Minutes to Raise the Dead, How You Can Preach Your Best Sermon Yet This Sunday. Which I suppose implies that you're the dead. Hmm. Uh, for a while, this movement actually seems to be fading somewhat, but for a while it was very uh, popular to talk about preaching as an antiquated form of communication. Um, and, and it was said that in order to reach people today, you have to do different things, like have dialogue or show video clips or add drama to your sermons. Since you can't beat the 1,754 ads most people see every day, you should try at least to be like them or to communicate in a way that, that people understand in our culture today. So, people who bought into that uh, present at their churches things that are supposed to be as clever and as impressive as commercials that you see on television, but without the billion dollars of advertising money, they just aren't. So the church offers cheap imitations of what you can watch better in your Barca lounger at your own home. Um, you know, you can't fault God. God, apparently God doesn't have as much money as Nike, so he can't help his people come up with creative things, right? Right? 
Um, unless you're involved in the task of teaching or preaching, you probably uh, don't think much about how it can be better. You think about preaching a lot, but not in those terms. You think, is it interesting? Is it useful? Is it going to help me? That, that's how you think. Uh, is, is it at least marginally in some way tied to the text of the Bible? Uh, this morning we prayed together for our elders. These are the men responsible under the authority of Christ and appointed by the congregation to oversee the teaching ministry of our congregation. Elders are responsible, First Timothy 2 says, to teach and to lead Some are more gifted in doing so publicly. Some are better at smaller private settings. But these men are supposed to be able to take God's Word and and show you, help people understand how it works and how it applies to life. It's an elder's responsibility, but really it's something that we're all concerned about. Uh, The Bible tells us why understanding this book is important. We take the Bible at its word when it describes human beings in our natural condition apart from the intervention of God as lost. We're wandering. We have darkened minds and, to be as frank as the Bible says, we're ignorant and foolish. This is one of the ways that disconnect from God manifests itself and it all began in Genesis 3. We live in this Genesis 3 world where our parents, Adam and Eve, chose to disobey God and the consequences of disobeying God, rejecting the authority of our Creator, have fallen upon us and we have twisted wills and uh, broken hearts and darkened minds. Uh, And that sin will manifest itself in our lives in, in foolishness, ignorance, lostness. Um, There are brilliant people in the world, people who are very, very intelligent. The problem is, though, we're too smart about the wrong things. Uh, And as part of God's plan to reconcile the world to himself, God has given us teachers, people who can take God's word and explain it. This is only part of God's plan, but it's a crucial piece of it. And today, as we sit together under the authority of God's Word, I have a specific audience in mind. I want to talk to the men and women in our church who are or who will be teachers of God's Word. The rest of you can listen if you want to, but if you are a teacher of God's Word in our congregation, I want to talk to you today. Uh, there are men uh, who are elders or pastors or will be future pastors or uh, this is for the men and women who are Sunday school teachers or Bible study leaders or who serve in children's church. Um, today, I want you to listen as we look together at what the Bible says in Malachi chapter 2. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Malachi chapter 2, if you would. Uh, By now, you are well familiar with my uh, speech about where Malachi is. Malachi is right at the end of the Old Testament. The easiest way to find Malachi is to go, what, to Matthew and turn left. So if you find the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Mark, turn left and you'll find Malachi right there. We are spending our days uh, in this last prophecy that God spoke to his people Uh, There were 400 years of silence between Malachi and Jesus' birth in Matthew. And this book, Malachi, was written to a discouraged people. 
They were people who had a long history with God. Uh, they have uh, heard God's promises. They've seen God done, do some miraculous and stupendous things. They have fallen under God's judgment. And here they are back in the land that they had been exiled from and things are not working out well for them. Their situation is dire. Uh, they're, they're poor, they're marginalized, uh, they're struggling, and they have concluded that God doesn't care about us. And their assumption is, if God doesn't care about us, then we don't care about God. And, and one of the ways that that manifested itself, uh, that, that lack of that indifference to God, is in their worship. Last week we talked about um, how they offered God their barely valued leftovers but he is worthy of our best. We talked about that last week. In Malachi 2, 1 through 9, we turn to a different aspect of worship, not just the sacrifices, but another area where they were sloppy in their response to God, namely teaching. And I'm going to organize these thoughts uh, today around three headings, three truths that I trust emerge from the text. Um, let me share them with you, and then I'm going to read the text. All right. First, we'll see God takes teaching seriously, and so should we. God takes teaching seriously, and so should we. Number two, God takes teachers seriously, and so should we. God takes teachers seriously, and sh- so should we. And third, a little bit different, God provides a way for teachers to teach. God provides a way for teachers to teach. I'll, I'll explain that statement when we get there. But um, let's uh, read the text first. All right, You follow along as I read from the New International Translation of the Old Testament, uh, Malachi 2, starting in verse 1. All right, Follow along. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you did not listen... If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the awful from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin." For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned away from, you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Now, obviously, the focus of this passage is on the priests and their responsibility to teach. We often think of priests merely in terms of offering sacrifices, but this actually refers to their teaching ministry. They were involved in that, and God is sorely disappointed with how they're teaching. We learn here first that God takes teaching seriously. 
why is God so angry with the people, with the priests and how they're teaching? Or maybe I should offer, ask that question in a slightly different way. Um, uh, why is teaching such a priority for, for God? Or how do we know teaching is such a priority for God? Um, two ways. I want to show you two words in the text that show us why God cares about what they're doing so much. And the first word is the word covenant. Covenant. Uh, we know that God cares about teaching because God appointed teachers in Israel and he established a covenant with them. Uh, the word covenant means treaty. And you see covenants all the way through the Bible. It's similar to a contract, uh, like a peace accord or a trade agreement. Uh, in Bible times, the covenant could be made between two different nations or it could be made between two nations of vastly different powers, a great nation and a small nation. Maybe the larger nation would promise to, to protect the smaller nation and the smaller nation would open trade routes to the larger nation. And the Bible itself is organized around covenants. You can't read the Old Testament very long without coming across that word. And in all the covenants that God makes in the Bible, God is the larger, more powerful party who enters into agreements with people. You can read and talk about the Abrahamic covenant. We do, the promises that God made to Abraham. Or the Davidic covenant, the promises that God made to David. Or the Mosaic covenant, the promises God made to Moses. Or the New Covenant. The Bible is organized around these covenants. And in verse 4, he mentions a covenant with Levi. Now, Levi was one of the sons of Jacob, and his name is attached to one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, it was Levi's descendants who were priests in Israel. So he's talking about this covenant made with the priests. Uh, the Bible actually does not say anything very nice about Levi, um, the person. It doesn't praise him very highly. And I'm not exactly sure where God instituted this covenant with Levi, though I have one suggestion for you to consider. Take your Bibles, keep your finger in Malachi 2, and turn back with me to Numbers chapter 25. I want to direct your attention to Numbers 25. Um, here is a story that takes place while the Israelites are wandering before they've gone into the land. Moses is still alive and is leading them. And something happens in Numbers 25 um, that is uh, dire for the people. But we see God, uh, God's mercy in, through the hands of a man by the name of Phineas. Um, by the way, if you ever have a responsibility to teach middle school boys, mark this passage in your Bible. They will love this story. All right? You'll see why in just a minute. Okay? Numbers 25, verse 1. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. Um, in this day, uh, the Moabites engaged in worshiping of idols, and one of the key ingredients in idol worship in Palestine during this day was uh, sexual immorality, uh, cult prostitution, and that's what the passage is speaking about here. Verse 3, So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. 
then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now picture what happens here. The people are engaged in idolatry. God says to Moses, you must put the people engaged in idolatry to death. And everybody uh, comes to their senses and they start weeping over this. We must discipline these members of our uh, tribe for what they've done. And while they're sitting around weeping, this guy walks through with this Moabite test prostitute right in front of them. Uh, it, right at the, in full view of everybody, he takes this woman to his own tent. I mean, this is, this is a horrible offense. This is worse than taking a pork chop to a kosher wedding. I mean, this is bad. This is bad. So, verse 7. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly. Here's the middle school boy part took a spear in his hand and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through the both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. God had a significant message for the people here. (laughs) Phineas was the one who delivered the message and the Israelites got the point. Verse 10, the Lord... Who said, I can't believe. Okay, let's keep going. (laughs) Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore, tell him, I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. You see here some of the words and concepts in Numbers 25, same thing that you see in Malachi 2. In response to Phineas's zeal and decisive action, God makes a covenant with him and his descendants. They'll be part of a lasting covenant. This covenant... Um, starts gruesomely, doesn't it? In the midst of a plague that killed thousands of people with a spear. Um, this covenant is described in Malachi 2. Sounds pretty gruesome too. Uh, because they weren't upholding it, God's going to spread offal on their faces. We'll talk about what that is in a minute. It's, it's gross. Um, in Numbers 25 and in Malachi, we see something that is very important about God. God is anxious to provide life and wholeness to His people. You can see that in verse 5. What sort of covenant was this? It was a covenant of life and peace, of shalom, of wholeness and refreshing. This is the covenant that God wants to make with His people, with uh, the, the Levites. But they rejected that covenant by their behavior, by their actions. And that is something that God takes very seriously. See, the Bible says that God is gracious and He's kind. He he promises to turn your sorrows into joy. He is a providing God. He will meet your needs. He will cover your sins through the, the death of His Son. But if you reject Him, it is a rejection that God takes very seriously. 
Uh, Deuteronomy 28:47. Listen to what it says. It says, "Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, therefore in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies that the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed this, you." You can understand a little bit of what's happening here. Um, uh, l- let me explain. Several years ago, when I was a teenager, we were at Bush Gardens in Williamsburg. We were visiting that amusement park. We were having a great day. And as we were walking around a certain portion, there was a little girl. She was probably two or three years old, sitting in, a, in an umbrella stroller, and she started to complain. She moaned and she groaned and she whined, she complained. Nothing was right. She was thirsty, she was hot, she was bored. And her mother was really doing everything she could to make this little girl happy. Finally, though, this mother blurted in exasperation, we traveled a long way to get here and I have spent a lot of money for this day at the amusement park and you better sit down and start having fun or I'm really going to get angry. God, God speaks similarly in the Bible. I, I have blessed you. I, I, have, I have provided to, for you. I promise you life and wholeness and peace and forgiveness. And I want you to enjoy it and you would be a fool not to. And, and, and if, if you reject what I'm offering you, you will suffer grievously. You're rightly condemned. To whom much is given much is required. Now, uh, we, we've wandered a little bit, I know, this morning from God's concern for teaching, but the term covenant is actually really important in the book of Malachi. Uh, when you see it, pay attention as you read this uh, prophecy. My, my point here in pointing it out to you is that God takes teaching seriously because he entered into a covenant relationship with Israel's teachers. It's that important to him that his word be communicated. Uh, you know, in the New Testament, God doesn't make a covenant with teachers. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you're not in the covenant of Levi. <laughs> but Ephesians chapter 4 does tell us that God gives teachers to the church. And he has given men and women the gift of teaching. And some of you here this morning are gifted teachers. And you should be encouraged by this, by how highly God values teaching. When you, when you walk into your classroom or, or you sit down with your Bible study book and you, you pick up your curriculum, you're doing something that God cares deeply about. He's enthusiastic about. He's glad that you're doing that sort of work. Are you ever discouraged in that work that you're doing? <laughs> Teaching doesn't have immediate rewards sometimes. Sometimes you pick up your material and you look at your, you look at it while you're reading it and you think, this is, this is awful. Even I'm bored by this material. Or sometimes maybe you think to yourself, how in the world am I going to explain this? How am I going to explain this to these kids so that they understand or how it, it applies? Sometimes you come to church and you think to yourself, you know, it would just be easier if I could just go sit down somewhere and listen to someone else teach instead of doing this work that I'm engaged in. But but can I remind you that God has gifted you, He has invited you into this work to participate in His work in these lives of boys and girls or men and women who sit in front of you. If you're teaching God's word, you're giving them light and life and food. 
God committed himself to this tribe in the Old Testament because he wanted his word to be taught. And you're doing the same. God takes teaching seriously. I mentioned the word covenant. There's another word that's important that tells us that God takes teaching seriously. And it's actually in here. It's the word curse. The word curse. God takes teaching seriously and he removes from teaching those who do not take teaching seriously. Um, Verse 2, the priests are not obeying. They're not showing proper respect to God. So verse 2, it says, God says, I will send a curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. You're familiar, I'm sure, with the, the, the blessing in the book of Numbers. Uh, it's, an, the, it's sometimes called the Aaronic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. It was a great privilege of a priest to be able to stand before the people and offer that blessing. And yet, God says, you're not taking your work seriously. I'm going to turn that curse upside down so that whenever you say the Lord bless you and keep you, I'm just going to use your words to curse the people. Uh, look what he says here in verse 3 about this curse here. Because of you, rebuke, because of you I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices. Now, awful is a very polite word to describe something that is very nasty. When, a, when someone would take a sacrifice into the temple, uh, they would bring the lamb and uh, slit the lamb's throat. The blood would be splashed on the altar. The skin would be taken and given to the priest. Uh, some of the animal, the fat and, and choice portions would be burned on the altar. Depending on what kind of sacrifices it is, some of it would be eaten by the people. Some of it would go to the priest. There was a portion, though, of that animal that you could not use that had just to be removed from the camp. It was the intestinal organs. And inside the intestines would be the offal, the undigested uh, part of food. It was... Um, indelicately, it was feces before it had been excreted from the body. Um, And God says, I'm going to take it and I'm going to spread it on the face, on your faces. Um, Which is gruesome and gross. And it also makes you ineligible to offer sacrifices. God says, you don't value teaching. I'm going to curse you. I'm going to remove you from where you are. I'm going to take you out so that you will get out of the way, so that you will get out of the way, so other people who value this will be able to teach. Look, he says, um, I am sending this to you. I'm going to do this to you, verse 4, so that my covenant with Levi may continue. God says, I want people to know my word. I want my word to be taught. I want life and wholeness for people. I want them to have life and peace. And if you won't deliver it, I will get rid of you and bring in somebody else who will. What we're discovering here as we read the Bible is is that as good as God's plans are, because of human sin, we need a better, we need a a permanent solution. The covenant with Levi was good, but it wasn't good enough because it involved fallible human beings. James 3, what does it say? Don't be quick to be a teacher, because if you're a teacher, you'll be held to stricter judgment. God takes teaching very seriously. Uh, Let's move on here. God takes teaching seriously and so should we. Number two, God takes teachers seriously and so should we. 
Do you know how much of the New Testament is devoted to describing the type of people who open God's Word? There's a lot in the Bible about it. Uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, much of 1 Thessalonians, much of 2 Corinthians is given over to describing the type of people who stand and describe and teach God's Word. I want to show you, though, look at what verses 5 through 7 say about God's intention for the priests who were teachers. And I want you to see here uh, three things that are marked the lives of those who teach God's word. Number one is reverence. Reverence. Verse 5, My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. See, the foundation of your work as a teacher in our congregation is reverence, is awe for God. Malachi is describing this deep, pervasive, weighty understanding of the worth and majesty and glory of God. Do do your students see that in your life when you communicate God's Word to them? That this is the ballast of your life, this great reverence for God? Oh, Boy, if Malachi starts here, we're in trouble, aren't we? See, the most important thing in your teaching is not your fluency, it's not your organization, it's not your knowledge, your illustrations, or your enthusiasm. It's, it's the weight of the glory of God and how it pervades your life, that He's the dominant focus in your life, His supremacy, His majesty. Uh, this week at the uh, Edwards Reading Group, this group of men reading some Puritan books, we, we read uh, about how um, one of Satan's uh, malicious tools against us is to distract our minds with vain or empty thoughts. I don't think that I have ADD. The only time I'm attempted to think that I have attention deficit disorder is when I pick up the Bible to read it or I try to pray. My brain is filled with vaults of useless information and those doors open and the lights go on every time I try to pick up a Bible to read it. Um, Does anybody else have that problem? You're giggling a little bit, so I'm hoping I'm not alone in this. Why can I name all of the children in the Brady Bunch, but I have trouble recalling the warnings in 1 Corinthians 10? Peter, Marsha, Cindy, Greg, Peter, Bobby, Jan. Jan, everybody forgets Jan. Why do I know that? I don't need to know that. Ah. Brooks offers this, uh, this help uh, f- for people uh, fighting empty thoughts. Listen to what Brooks says. Have your heart strongly affected with the greatness, the holiness, the majesty, and the glory of God before whom you stand. Listen to this great line. A man would be afraid of playing with a feather when he is speaking with a king. Now, when you stand in front and you open God's Word, you have a king's book in front of you to communicate. And your students desperately need to, you, to see in your life that you revere him, that he is weighty to you. Um, it, we've already talked about God's greatness. We talked about it last week. God is great. He is great beyond the borders of Israel. Everyone someday, because of Jesus Christ's work, when He transforms this world, His followers are going to gather and they're going to acclaim His greatness on every inch of soil in this world. Jesus Christ is going to be known as great. And that reverence 
carries you into your class to open God's Word and say, look and see God's greatness in this book. If you want to teach, this awe for God has to be at the foundation. As a teacher in, this, in the congregation, I have hopes, I have goals for you. I want you to lead uh, um, happy lives. I want you to be content. I want you to have good marriages, and I want you to have stable families. And I want you to be able to face problems at work with confidence. I want you to be able to forgive one another easily. But I want all of those things to flow out of your awe for God, that you revere Him. Are you qualified to teach? Reverence is number one. The second thing, God takes teachers seriously. We see here the role of truth, truth in their lives. Verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. Look at verse 7. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge and from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. Uh, This is an easy congregation in which to speak truth. Can I I tell you that and affirm you that way? This is an easy congregation to to say hard things to. Um, In fact, most of the time when I talk about hard things, people say thank you uh, rather than complaining or wondering what happened to me. The Bible Bible says hard things at times, and it would be easy to avoid uh, avoid those hard things. Let me show you something hard that we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks. Flip over to Malachi 2 if you need to and look at verse 16. We're going to spend two weeks, I believe, in verses 10 through 16. And here's verse 16. Look what it says. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. That's a hard thing. (laughs) Actually, I'm going to ask Pastor Scott or Steve Wilson to preach that passage. (laughs) Actually, it's not hard to say. It is not hard to say that God hates divorce. Everybody hates divorce, especially people who are divorced because they know how awful it is. God hates divorce. We're going to talk about what that means in the next couple weeks. What's hard about that is not saying that God hates divorce. What's hard about that is saying that without making people who are divorced feel like they, that God can't forgive them and we won't welcome them. That's the hard part. According to, to verse 9 of chapter 2, uh, uh, the, the priests were, were teaching God's word with partiality. They weren't speaking truthfully. And God hated their partiality. In fact, their partiality made them unqualified to teach Paul says something similar in 2 Timothy 4. He says, in the latter times, people will surround themselves with people who will, uh, teachers who will tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. Paul uh, says to Timothy, keep your head, Timothy, in those situations. Speak the truth. There's, there's a third thing that God says about teachers. They, they uh, reverence for God, truth. Third, personal integrity. Personal integrity. See, so there, there's a, a look at verse um, uh, verse number six. There should be a a, a a similarity, a matching between how people live, how these teachers live, and what they teach. Look at verse six again. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. Here it is. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and turned many from sin. Or verse eight talks about the opposite. You have turned 
from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. See, the Bible expects that there's this correspondence between what you say and how you live, and, and, and no one appreciates hip, hypocrites, and God was grieved at the hypocrisy of the priests. This call for personal integrity is one of the reasons why we look so carefully at Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 where the qualifications for elders are written. Before we appoint people to be elders, we look at that passage and think again. I'm remembering what Athanasius, the church father, said. He said, you cannot put straight in others what is warped in yourself. (laughs) Now I read this text and I think to myself, who is equal to this task? I'm up here uh, saying these things, reverence and truth and personal integrity, and you're all looking at me, and you can think of ways in which I have failed here. Or or you know our elders, and you, you think about them. I think I'd rather talk about divorce than actually talk about how the qualifications for being a teacher in the congregation. It would be easier. An elderly woman approached a pastor one day after her sermon, after his sermon, and she said to him, Oh, pastor, you preach so beautifully. Your life must be wonderful. And he said to her, Ma'am, I can preach more gospel in ten minutes than I can live in ten years. Who's equal to this task, this description? If you're sitting here thinking you're going to resign, we will not accept your resignation. I come to these things, though, uh, and I find here in this passage, though, hints of how, point three, God provides a way for teachers to teach. I'm struck at how I read Malachi 2 and struck at how many times this passage points ahead to Christ. Malachi seems to plug into a vocabulary that describes who Jesus is. Let me give you an example here. Uh, verse 9 says, You've shown partiality in matters of the law in their teaching. Listen to what somebody said of Jesus in Luke 20, speaking to him. It says, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in truth. Doesn't that sound like Malachi 2 to you? That Jesus fits all of these qualifications But the astounding part is that the passage, the prophet says that teachers who fail to teach the truth with impartiality will be despised and humiliated before all the people. Does that vocabulary bring anything to mind? Isn't that what Jesus did, what the Bible says about Jesus? That he was despised by men, humiliated in front of them? How can this be here? Jesus meets all the qualifications of a perfect teacher and yet he experienced all the suffering of a a hypocritical, broken, irreverent, untruthful teacher. How can those things be? This seems like great uh, perversity of justice. If your company, uh, if it's your company, the guy who works hard and arrives on time and produces a lot during the day is passed over for promotion in favor of the guy who steals from the office and never comes to work on time and offends your customers, there's something wrong, right? Something's wrong with that system. Uh, by the standards of, of this passage, it seems like God's justice system is out of alignment, right? But Jesus did not suffer for, my, for his own failings. He suffered for my failings, for your failings. 
for the shortcomings of every failing teacher and every hypocritical elder. This is God's justice. God offers forgiveness and life to all, even though we don't deserve it. In fact, uh, we deserve God's wrath. We deserve, I deserve to be despised and humiliated before you. But God offers forgiveness and life and wholeness because Jesus paid the penalty we owed when He died on the cross. He died as our substitute and by God's sheer unmerited kindness, if you will trust in Him, if you will turn from whatever you think is satisfying you now to Him, you will find life in Him. Trusting Him, relying this conscious decision of dependence that you're going to trust in what Christ did on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And a new relationship with Him begins. That forgiveness is a gift of grace and so is your teaching ministry. You know, you know what really makes you qualified to stand in front of people and open God's Word? It's if you go deeply in the things of Christ, who He is and what He's done. This is how God makes you able to stand, that you live in Him, that your mind is focused on Him, that you love Him deeply. See, if you're going to teach God's Word vocationally, um, I hope that your whole education, whether it's in college or seminary, is centered around Christ, that you center your education around Him. If it's not vocationally still, soak your mind and your heart in the life and the glory and the gospel of Christ like a sponge soaking up water so that when your students grab a hold of you and squeeze, out comes the gospel. <laughs> That's the only way the only way that you're ultimately going to be able to respond to the 1,754 ads that most people saw this week. Let's pray, shall we? Father, these are hard words and you in Malachi are shouting in your book to your people who have shut their ears against you. Father, I pray this morning as we gather together today uh, that you would um, open our ears and our eyes that they might be attentive and tuned to this rebuke in Malachi. Father, I'm so thankful for the men who serve as elders in our congregation. I'm grateful for the men and women who teach uh, Sunday school classes and lead Bible studies and open God's Word in children's church. I'm, I'm grateful to you for the, the men and women who hold babies in the nursery and sing to them that Jesus loves me. Father, I pray that you would take these gifted people and that you would make them uh, uh, live in the, the mold of this, this vision you have for those who would teach your word. That, that I, that we might be men and women of reverence who stand in awe of your name, that we might be people who, who speak the truth, even uncomfortable truths, and that, that have lives that match the things that we say. Thank you that Jesus Christ, by his gospel, makes us equal to this task. We stand in him, we rest in him joyfully. Help us to go deep in him. We pray, we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. O oh, great God of highest heaven, 
You are worthy to be praised. Let's stand together and sing our closing song, O Great God.